At the start of the year, there was one single enemy for central bankers. Inflation remains well above 2%. Inflation is expected to stay too high. The challenge of high inflation, however, still persists. And the response were in line with the price war strategy. At today's meeting, the committee raised the target range for the federal funds rate, bringing the target range to four and three quarters to five percent. The Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate to five percent yesterday. Bank of England today has raised base rate from four and a half percent to five percent. Interest rates in Japan are starting to appear again for the first time in over a decade. The Monetary Policy Committee voted unanimously to increase the policy repo rate by 40 basis points to 4.40%. But then the economy did not play the game as per the rules. While headline inflation has receded from the highs of last year, it remains above target in many countries. The conditions in the labor market today are very strong, and the economy is returning to better balance between demand and supply for workers. We've continued to underestimate the strength of the labor market in the U.S., and that's really the secret sauce. And as the year is starting to wind down, the Fed has continued to pause, or some say even scripted a full stop. The markets from Wall Street to the Lal Street have bought out the fireworks hitting record highs as bets rise that cuts will be the catalyst to keep this party going. So what's in store for 2024? Were US recession risks overdone? Will India's uneven recovery reveal a new risk? Or is the exuberance in emerging markets just the start of a new era of growth? We head to New York where we speak to Jahangir Aziz, head of emerging market economies at JP Morgan, to get some answers. It's December 12th from the Economic Times. I'm your host Anupriya Nair and you're listening to Macros and Markets. Will cuts be the catalysts for 2024? Basic economic theory and also watching central bankers over the years have given us some basic lessons. Inflation rises, that is followed by rate rises, which squeezes liquidity, pulls down growth and in turn inflation, which then leads to a possible rate cut. And then the cycle continues. But the last 21 months have scripted a new story. The Fed, which began hiking rates in March of 22, pushed the benchmark up by 550 points, the fastest rate hike in 40 years, pushing the benchmark to its highest level since the financial crisis. And yet, it was not the economy or markets that came under pressure, just central bankers, as Powell's punches were taken well not just by growth but also by inflation that refused to budge in the US. And now as the Fed presses a full stop on rate hikes, one has to wonder, what was different this time? Why are the economic theories not playing by the book or did we miss something? I think we, as economists, I think we did not quite appreciate the initial conditions under which this rate hiking cycle happens in emerging market or in the U.S. So if you go back to 2013, 2018, and 
as good an example as anything else. You can go back to 2008 also. So if you look at those periods of time, then in the 18, 24 months prior to that, you find that these emerging market countries and the global economy at that point in time had massive increases in demand, whether it's consumption, whether it's investment. So it's a credit shield consumption and a credit shield investment demand that takes place. So the time when the central banks start raising rates, you have massive leverage in the system. You have private sector savings is almost not there because they've all used up in funding these massive credit shield consumption investment of the prior 24 months. And consequently, even small interest rate hikes has very large adverse impact in clamping down on both consumption and investment because of increasing interest rate, balance sheets have to be adjusted because they are very, very leveraged. And that, that's the down step, the leg of the business cycle that usually we go through. That was Jahangir Aziz, Head of Emerging Market Economies at JP Morgan, who has been observing the exuberance in EMs with a bird's eye view from his base on Wall Street. This time around, I think what we as economists didn't quite appreciate is that this time, no, inflation wasn't created because of prior months of massive credit shield expansion and consumption investment. Instead, it was a pandemic-related event. Everyone opened at the same time. And that produced this massive global demand shock. And exactly mm. at the same time, China, which is the manufacturing hub of the world, goes into lockdown, which is a massive negative uh, supply shock. This had nothing to do with leverage and, and, and savings going down. Instead, the opposite had happened. The private savings across the world, both in the US and in every emerging market country that you look at, was significantly above what used to be in the pre-pandemic. Leverage was one of the lowest we've seen at least till 2007. Credit squeeze is not there because no one is borrowing anything. I mean, corporates haven't invested in this last two years. Neither have consumers actually start spending a lot of money. So there's still private sector savings there. Leverage is still low uh, relative to where we were in 2019. And therefore, the impact of these rate hikes have had much less impact on squeezing the economy, whether it's consumption or investment, mm. than in previous cycles of central bank. The impact of these rate hikes have been less like Jahangir said. In fact, the IMF projects that the $26 trillion US economy will remain the strongest developed market performers and is expected to grow 2.1% this year and 1.5% next year. So there is a slowdown and an impact of the rate pressures will start to seep in. But the big question remains, will the slowdown be steep or subtle. The US economy is going to slow and it is going to slow to a point where it doesn't fall into a recession again for the same reasons. Leverage is low, as is, I mean, private sector still has a significant amount of excess savings. So you're not going to fall into the kind of recessionary dynamics. But for the time being, the data is going to be what we call observational equivalent. Data will not be able to tell you which branch of the world are we going into? Are we going into a world where 
there is truly a soft landing, or we are going into the world in which this is not really a soft landing. This is basically a hard landing recession, and we are just not seeing it. And now in JP Morgan, I would say that people are split between the two of them almost equally. So now the Fed starts to confront the next conundrum. Why to cut trades and then the when? The bond market pricing right now reflects the anticipation that the US central bank will lower rates by 100 basis points over the next year. This obviously will change the mood of money as it gets cheaper. And Jahangir expects this will raise the exuberance across EMs, especially India. Increasingly as the soft landing scenario is being accepted as having a high likelihood in 2024 and therefore with that hopes of rate cuts happening whether it happens in 1q 24 or in the second half doesn't really matter if you have the kind of resilience that we talked about in emerging markets which every emerging market has shown it's not just india that has surprised you on the growth in the upside if you have that kind of resilience our global financial conditions then in 24 at some point in time starts easing and easing significantly with fed rate cuts then this could be one of the strongest years in emerging market assets because no other reason like no other holds emerging market assets if you look at the same 2013 if you look at the 10 quarters prior to the second quarter of 2013 which is when the taper tantrum happened there was 800 billion dollars of inflows into emerging markets. If you look at the last 10 quarters, it's barely $180 billion. This is just gross flows. I'm not even talking about net flows. In terms of net flows, we are barely skating water in the last 10 quarters. So there isn't enough positioning in emerging markets. So if you, if you combine the lack of positioning, the fact that you still have, you have significant resilience, and on top of that, you get global financial conditions to ease, then chances are that, as I said, this is probably going to be one of the strongest years of capital flows in emerging markets. And the flows have already started to find themselves back to the Indian shores. Foreign portfolio investors or FPIs have injected 26,000 crore rupees into the Indian equity markets in just the first week of December. This is after we saw a brutal outflow of 76,000 crores in 3 months starting August. But the winds of change have started, be it because of politics or Powell. Both have obviously played their part. So now one turns to the RBI. What will Governor Das do next? After pressing the pause button for 3 times, will the night of Min Street have to just watch guard? I think the RBI is doing exactly what it should be doing given that they have that little safety between their rates and the fed funds rate they're not going to start cutting rates anytime soon because that would be dangerous in the event the fed doesn't cut rates so i don't think asian central banks are going to cut rates in anticipation of fed funds fed cutting rates they're going to wait till the fed actually not only cuts rates but actually convincingly tells us that they are on a easing cycle. RBI may have to be in a wait and watch mode, but Dalal Street is in no mood to slow down. With Nifty and Sensex both touching an all-time high. But the real story has been beyond the headline index. 
The mid-cap and nifty small-cap indices have surged 38% and 47% this year. And this market mania has pushed recovery sharper back to the top end, emphasizing the famous K-shaped recovery that JP Morgan's Sajid Chinoy talked about in 2021, where consumption of high-end items soar and low-end continues to languish. As a deep dive on Sunday ET highlighted, Rural India, which accounts for 40% of the overall FMCG market, has seen a noticeable drop in demand. But luxury items across the board, be it as small as cosmetics to big buck purchases, such as high-end homes, have been soaring. In fact, sale of luxury homes worth 4 crores or more have jumped a whopping 97% for the data that's available till September. And cars such as Mercedes and Audi touched record sales this festive season. So I turned to Jangi to ask if this K-shaped conundrum in India can continue and what will happen when there is a big mismatch between macros and markets. I would say that is sort of the implication of a K-shaped recovery, right? That the top part of the K will benefit certain groups of people. It will benefit, therefore, certain kinds of firms that is where the pool of excess savings sits. Therefore, the pool of excess savings will continue to keep asset prices afloat. In fact, asset prices do extremely well in India. That does not mean that India is out of the woods. In fact, if anything, India is one of the countries where the starring has been the most. If you look at the pre-pandemic trend growth, and if you think that you know, that's the trend growth that India could have achieved over the last three, four years. And you look at what India has actually achieved despite its 7% growth rates. We are about five, six percentage points lower than where we should have been based on the pre-pandemic one. And if you look at employment, and I'm, look, you know, we can debate about India's employment statistics till the cows come home, but let's take the PLFS numbers, right? And for the lack of any other you know, reasonable data on, on employment, employment growth has been not spectacular, but there has been recovery in employment numbers. I'm not talking about the quality of that employment numbers, since most of the employment numbers, employment growth has taken place in rural areas, in agriculture, rather than in urban areas and in manufacturing. In fact, I think over the last four years, only 9% of the new jobs have been created in manufacturing. But let's set aside the quality of employment. But employment recovery has taken place. The issue is that with employment recovery taking place, growth recovery not taking place as much as desired, and that there is still a gap, it essentially means that labor productivity, which we don't talk about in India, I know that. Labor productivity has fallen, gap has become even wider. And if you look at, even with these bad statistics, if you look at productivity of labor, productivity of labor in India today is even lower than it was in 2018 and 19. So the point being that, yes, growth is taking place, but growth is not taking place through the usual good cholesterol stuff, right? It is not taking place to a surge in private investment. It is not taking place to a surge in manufacturing. It is not taking place to a surge in productivity. I know that this might sound absurd given all the talk we have about digitalization, et cetera, but 
on the macro and the macro numbers, productivity today is lower than it was in 2018, 19. So mm. I don't think that India's, you know, industry should be really worried about the headline growth numbers. Uh, the global economy is going to slow, growth is going to slow. There's nothing magical about that. But I think what we need to really worry about the fact that we are growing without the right things, without private investment and without productivity increase, as opposed to the US, where you'll find that productivity growth on a sustained basis has been significantly higher in the post-pandemic world than in the pre-pandemic. But as the macro struggle to match up, there will be a new march ahead on Bond Street. It will not just be the foreign investors in the equity markets, but also the bond markets. From June of next year, the Indian government bonds will be included in the JP Morgan's bond index meant for government bonds for emerging markets, something that has been a long time awaited. But even as the street celebrates the estimated $25 to $30 billion it may bring in over the next year or two, one has to wonder that in today's day and age of massive global uncertainties and black swans popping up every few months, if this global interlinkage will be a boon or a bane. But as Jahangir reiterates, and a disclosure here that he does represent JP Morgan themselves, it is much needed, not just to open the market, but to truly make it transparent. If you look at bond pricing in India, it has been so insulated. It more or less reflects regulatory reality than economic reality. You can't tell me that an economy that has been well, nominal GDP growth averaging around about 13, 14% over the last 10 years, the bond yields of a 10-year uh, instrument has been around 400 basis points below that, if that's the economic reality. It doesn't. It reflects regulatory reality. The most positive part of all of this, as I said, is that at some point in time, not now, maybe three, four years down the road, we are probably going to get a proper pricing of, of the yield curve and if the government yield curve is properly priced, properly meaning reflecting economic realities, the budget, the fiscal deficit, the debt to GDP ratio, debt sustainability of the Indian government, right? Then so will the rest of the market be adequately priced. So I think this is an important step towards price discovery, which, you know, so far in the bond market, we haven't had. The second positive part of it is that it diversifies the people who are will be holding Indian government bonds. Right now, only people who hold Indian government bonds are people who are residents, right? But they're their resident firms or their resident uh, financial institutions and divisions. So when a shock hits India, the shock hits both the suppliers and the people who are the ones who hold bonds. Exactly the same shock. So you can't diversify away from that shock. It won't happen immediately, but over time, as the amount of foreign holding keeps rising, then there is the element that we will be able to see some diversification in the pool of people who are holding it. And therefore, we won't get hit by the same shock, both on the financial front as well as in the economic front. Right? So you put, that, and that's the positive thing. But I think that. The risk that you're talking about is, you know, 
will all of a sudden there'll be a surge of capital flows that comes in. My guess is that, you know, we're talking about probably one of the most interventionist central banks in the world. The Reserve Bank of India, I'm not passing in judgments about whether that's good or bad, will be intervening in the FX market, will be intervening in the bond market. I have no doubt that RBI is going to let a $25 billion of inflow go and disrupt interbank liquidity, inflation, and what it wants to do with, the, with its own policy rates. The central bank will not let that happen. So, Jangir, uh, RBI is standing full on guard, as you're saying. But before I end this interview, I have to ask you, we've talked about the exuberance and you said this very well could be the best year that emerging market asset classes have. But I want to take a little bit of a divergence and ask you, outside the exuberance, what exasperates you about emerging markets right now? What exasperates me is the fact that even after 25 years, emerging markets still have not realized that they essentially are tied to one thing and their growth is tied to just one thing, which is trade. So if you look at and I usually tell this to people and people do not ever believe me. So in the case of India, don't do anything complicated. Just take investment as a share of GDP. Just take the quarterly one. Don't do anything fancy. Take exports as a share of GDP. Draw the two charts. They have been the same chart since 2004, same lines since 2004. You do that for any emerging market country. It's not about China. In fact, China probably is much more separated from the trade cycle, a global trade cycle, than we are. It is that dependency on somebody else's demand to drive our growth. And, you know, that's been the story of emerging markets for 25 years, and that story continues. And very few emerging market countries, in fact, Apart from China, no other emerging market country has taken any steps to essentially move away from that dependency. We talk about making India and turning India into manufacturing hub. Again, you're basically pushing that dependency even further. Every country in the emerging market world now wants to be a manufacturing hub, by the way. Every country in the world cannot be a manufacturing hub. There has to be somebody who has to consume the widgets that these manufacturing hubs produce. The West cannot be the only people who consume those widgets. In fact, the West it's also is onshoring and is ensuring so that they too want to bring back manufacturing onto their shows. All of us cannot do that. It's, it's almost an impossibility. There has to be some people who will say, you know what, we would actually like to consume some of that. I think this, this is the problem that we, have, we are facing, that emerging market countries, even after 25 years later, still do not have their independent domestic sources of demand. Um, if I could just push that uh, point ahead a little bit, Jangir, what do these manufacturing hub creations really do? I mean, India is not the only one pushing for this China plus one theory. What is the risk to it? So I think more or less everyone has joined that bandwagon. Ah, okay. And the bandwagon is China plus one, China relocation, what is pensuring, onshoring, whatever you want to describe it as. And as I've pointed out, there is no 
any real evidence that any of that is happening. You just can't show me a collapse in FDI in China and say relocation is happening. Look at FDI collapse in India or in Mexico or any of these countries. Everywhere FDI has fallen, right? Some of this is going to happen. I'm not saying that, you know, all of it won't happen. Some of it will happen. Because it is, you know, every corporate's, you know, uh, hedging strategy today. I do not yeah. want to be caught up in the same pandemic-related disruptions yeah. uh, and pay the price for it. So let me have a secondary supply chain elsewhere. But the key point to note is that it's a secondary supply chain. It is yeah. still not the main supply chain. 70,000 on the Sensex screen and 7% the growth outlook. The picture for India is almost poetic. But as we turn the corner into 2024, one has to question if there are risks and realities we are choosing to ignore. First up, just across the border, the $18 trillion economy that has been silent for a while. And as Jahangir alluded, that all the China plus one manufacturing may well be just that the plus one and not the one. What is the trade reality going to look like when China steps back gun blazing and far more climate ready into the market? On a purely domestic front, a close eye on the K conundrum and the risks to the balance sheets, despite the RBI action in the unsecured space. But as they say, all's well that ends well. And the final chapters for 2023 are definitely one of cheer and hope. As we step into election year with a record high on the market screens, there is very little to complain about this New Year's. On that note, it's a wrap on this edition of the Morning Brief podcast. You've been listening to me, your host, Anupriya Nair. A big shout out to the team that helped put this together. On the production, Sarohini Jain and Vinayak Agarwal. On sound, Amrit Regi and Indranil Bhattacharji. A lot more coming up on The Morning Brief this week, so stay tuned to the podcast platform of your choice for the very latest from The Economic Times.